0: Well, again, it's a joy to be with you on this Lord's Day, and uh, this morning it's my intention to bring the Word of God to you from uh, the book of Numbers, as you can see in your bulletin. And it might not sound so exciting, the book of Numbers, woo-hoo, right? But God's Word is living and active, amen? You see, the book of Numbers has great relevance for us. If there's something that the book of Numbers teaches us, it's that our lives are lived in the arena of the wilderness, the wilderness, as you know, is unpredictable. The terrain is almost never easy and almost always harsh. Living life in the wilderness is a struggle. The Apostle Paul, he said it best in Second Corinthians four eight. He said that we as Christians we are troubled on on every side. You see, Paul he knew a thing or two about living life in the wilderness. He lived the whole of his Christian life with all sorts of trials and tribulation. Well, that's what we have in the book of Numbers, a people much like ourselves living life in the wilderness. And so with that, if you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Numbers and that to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. And we'll ask the Lord to come and help us in our endeavor let's pray together father in heaven make your word come alive in us we pray and as we open the book show us show us christ as we just sung show us the beauty of christ give us eyes to see and ears to hear and we ask that you would save those who are perishing and we ask that you would strengthen those who are struggling speak for your servants are listening in Jesus' name we pray amen Well, as you know, Numbers chapter 21 here begins with the life of Moses. And we need to know that much has happened in the life of Moses when we get to Numbers chapter 21. And that he has experienced great loss. If you take a quick look back at Numbers chapter 20 with me, you'll notice in the beginning of the chapter that his sister Miriam, she dies. But that's not all. At the end of that very chapter, in chapter 20, his brother Aaron dies as well. And so Moses, in chapter 20, he loses both of his siblings. And they were important in his life, and they were important in the life of Israel. Miriam was the most widely known woman in all of Israel. Aaron served as its high priest. But I want you to notice there that in between the death of his older sister and his younger brother, Moses, he he loses another thing. He loses the promised land. As the Israelites grumbled for water, Moses was told by God to specifically speak for water to come forth from the rock. He was commanded by God to use merely his words. But Moses, if you remember, in, in anger and in frustration, what did he do? He struck the rock with his staff. And God tells Moses there in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you, Moses, shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. In other words, you don't get to go. Think about that. Moses is denied entrance into the promised land. And it all started with a grumbling congregation and his sinful response to, to them. It was ultimately a distrust in God. Now let me just tell you here, quick application, beloved. Let me tell you that leadership is very hard. It's really hard. It requires much patience. Dare I say, supernatural patience. It requires an abandonment of self and pride and a, and a complete trust in God. And brothers and sisters here, and I know you do. I know you do but I, I hope and pray that you are thankful for your elders and your pastor, for your elders, Sammy and Steve, and for your pastor, Pastor Sam. They are humble, faithful men. They, you have a group of men who truly desire to care for the eternal well-being of your souls. And I know that. They didn't pay me to say that, but I know that because whenever I talk to Pastor Sam, the way that he talks about his church, I just, I could tell. And so pray for them and submit to them as Hebrews chapter 13 tells us to, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. But notice here, Moses, he he loses control, and as he does, he loses the very thing that he was leading the people to. It was a devastating loss. For all these years, this was Moses' mission, to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the place of promise, and now that's taken from him in a short span of time. He loses the two most important people in his life and he loses the promised land. Well, how do you recover after such a loss? How do you move forward? For Moses, think about it, what's the point now? And you see the impulse here would have been to say, well, if I'm barred from that place of promise, if I can't go there, then let the people figured out themselves, right? Let them find their own way there. But here's Moses, continuing to endure, continuing to intercede on behalf of the people, continuing to love and continuing to lead the people. Well, why? Why? It's because at the end of the day, beloved, it's not the land that was his ultimate prize, but it was His God. Why else would Moses still be there in the midst of the people? You see, if that parcel of land was his final end, then Moses should have turned around and he should have deserted them and gone home. But he didn't. Because his greatest treasure was not the land, but the God who in His grace gave it to His people. Again, beloved, what good is the promised land if God, is absent. And Christian, let me just ask, how many of us can think like that? When stripped of our earthly aspirations, our material possessions, to continue to stay resolute in faithfulness to God. To say it another way, what does our worship look like when we don't get the things that we want? And sometimes it's the opposite, isn't it? That when there's an abundance of what we want, we're often tempted to think that we don't need God. Well, I want you to notice that that's the context as we come to Numbers chapter 21. And notice that Numbers chapter 21 begins with Israel facing opposition. Here they were making their way through the wilderness when they were met by a Canaanite king. And what happened wasn't a friendly diplomatic get-together, but what happened here in Numbers 21 was rather war. And Israel, Israel, they lose this war. Look at verse 1 with me. When the Canaanite, the king of Erat, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Athrum, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Well now, how did the Israelites respond? In an unlikely response, the people, notice here, they turn to God. They turn to God and they ask God for victory. They made a vow to the Lord, look at verse 2, that if you give us the victory, then we in turn, we will devote ourselves, or we will devote rather, the cities of this Canaanite king to destruction. And we're told in verse 3 that the Lord obeyed the voice of the Lord. Notice that phrase there. It's not too often that we see that phrase in our Bibles. Usually the voice of the Lord is obeyed. But here, instead we read here that the Lord obeyed the voice of Israel. Well, how does that work? How is it that God would obey the voice of Israel? You see, it's called prayer. That when we humbly come to God and submit our hearts to Him, that He answers the Spirit's groaning in us. It's when His will becomes my will so that when I pray, my prayer is, in essence, His will. And what God wants in our lives is for His will to be done. Well, we can ask then, what is God's will for my life? To recover from recent stock losses? To get a new job? To buy a new house? To find a wife or a husband? Romans 8.28 says this is God's purpose in your life to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's His will in your life. And let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you praying that in your life? Lord, conform me into the image of His Son. Rather than, Lord, I want to get a new job so I can make more money. Lord, make me holy. You know how we pray, or the lack thereof, reveals much about ourselves. Well, here in Numbers 21, God answers Israel's prayer and gives the Canaanites over to them. And to make it even sweeter, I want you to notice that they called the place in verse 4 Hormah. They called the place Hormah. Now, why is that significant? It's because this place they called Hormah was the very site in which Israel was defeated by the Canaanites. If you remember in the Exodus, Chapters back, Israel had 12 spies, if you remember the story. They sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan. Word came back from the 12 that they seemed like grasshoppers compared to these giants. And while two of them wanted to go take the land, the remaining 10 advised all the people not to go. And in response, the people, remember, they rebelled against God, and God in turn, he judged them. But it's after that judgment that Israel decided to go into the land without the approval of God. And so there in Numbers 14, they entered Canaan only to be defeated and to die by the sword from the Amalekites and the Canaanites. And that place was called Horma. Now here in Numbers 21, rather than attempt to enter the land by their own strength, they entered the land by prayer. And as a result God gave them the victory. This was a monumental event for Israel. And if you know the story of the Israelites in the Exodus or in the wilderness, this was possibly the the beginning of something new for the people. A renewed faith in God. A rekindled trust in God. This is a great lesson that we've learned. We can we've we've turned it around. But as soon as the last celebratory drink was Notice what happened. They fall into the same old sin. Now for the rest of our time, I want us to focus on what takes place here in verses four through nine. And we'll take a closer look here, but basically this is what happens to give you an outline of sorts. Israel sins and then God judges them. Israel responds and God shows them mercy. Notice firstly that they repeat the, the same sin. Look at verse four and five. From Mount Hor they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Well, after the victory at Hormah, we might have expected the people of Israel to be thankful to be grateful. We might have expected that they had now figured out the formula. Trust and obey God and we will get the victory. Israel, notice, they should have learned this by now. But instead they go back to grumbling and complaining against God. And this has been the pattern. The people complained upon leaving Egypt. They complained upon entering the land. They complained about not having food. They complained about not having water. They complained about not having meat. And now here they are just having defeated a Canaanite king, having food, having water, having meat. And here's what they say. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For because there is no food and there is no water. But wait a minute. Look in your Bibles. They do have food and water. What do you mean there is no food and water? You can just see here the damaging effects of sin. Their sin of complaining, their sin of grumbling is doing something to them. And it's doing something to their thinking. It's hindering their ability to think with any kind of clarity. And beloved, this is what sin does. It distorts the mind. It impedes one's judgment. But you see, that's not the real complaint, is it? Because the truth comes after. There is actually food and water. Because this is what they say next. Look at what it says there. We loathe this worthless food. There is food. You know, as we evaluate the sin of Israel here, we can ask, well, what is Israel's problem? What is Israel's heart problem? And we know they have a heart problem. They have a hardened heart. But if we make a deeper incision into the heart, what is the issue that we find there? Beloved, there's a lot there's pride, there's ungratefulness. There's impatience. It's all those things. But I think what we find at the very center is this. I think what we find is this. It's the sin of discontentment. It's the sin of discontentment. Now, why do I think that? It's because the main fruit of discontentment is to possess a complaining and grumbling spirit. And this is what is revealed all throughout the book of Numbers for the people of Israel. They are discontent. And they are not satisfied with God and all of His provisions. And thus, they take that which God had given to them, holy manna, bread from heaven, the food of angels, as some say, and they called it worthless. They called it worthless. They despised and rejected the holy things of God, and as a result, they profaned God. And we see this, beloved, and we are repulsed by their behavior. We are taken aback as to just how boldly sinful these people are. And it takes place throughout the book of Numbers over and over and over and over again. But let me also say this, One of the ways that the Bible attests to its truthfulness to us is by speaking directly to us and showing us our own sins. This is how we know the Bible is the truth because it reveals to us our own hearts. And if we we were to put our own hearts out on the table next to the one we just saw here in the Israelites, here's the thing. We wouldn't be able to tell them apart. You see, at the end of the day, we're really not that different than the rebellious people on the pages before us. Brothers and sisters, what do you often find yourself grumbling and complaining about? Is it your marriage? Is it your children? Is it your job? Is it your singleness? Is it your lack of something? Or is it the excess of something What is it that you're so dissatisfied with in your life? And the truth of the matter is that when we find ourselves discontent in our lives, it means really this, that we're discontent with God. For the people of Israel, they took the heavenly manna, the heavenly food, and they called it worthless. And for us as Christians, we can take also the same, the holy things of God, and we often disparage it as the Israelites did with the bread that was holy. We do the same with other things that are holy. The church that is holy, we often complain about the church, don't we? We do it with our marriages. Our marriages are holy. We complain about our marriages. We do it with the good things in which God gives to us. We treat it as worthless. Notice secondly, God responds here with judgment in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Well, God sends fiery serpents or poisonous snakes into the camp of Israel. And this was the judgment of God. Notice the people sin. They sin by complaining and grumbling about the adversity of their circumstances. And so what does God do? He sends more adversity. He sends them more adversity not for the sole purpose of inflicting pain. But he's driving into the people of Israel this message. Stop sinning. And God will do that at times, will he? He'll make the situation in our lives more severe. It'll get worse. He'll bring more trials. He'll increase the temperature. Why? To get us to our breaking point. To get you to stop looking down, but to look up and to get your attention. And here are numbers. This is why God sends poisonous snakes throughout the camp. But what's interesting to note here is this these poisonous snakes were not foreign to the wilderness. Now, what do I mean? God didn't just drop them out of the sky. Where are these Israelites? They're in the wilderness. They are in a place which is the natural habitat for poisonous snakes. Deuteronomy 8.15 describes the wilderness as great and terrifying with, with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no water. This is the wilderness. This is the environment in which the Israelites journeyed through. Well, then how come they weren't bitten by these snakes before? It's because God, in His mercy, preserved the people from being hurt by them. This is what Israel failed to consider and to see that throughout their wilderness wanderings, not only had God provided food and water, but He had also protected them. He had held back these poisonous serpents, these poisonous snakes from harming them. And so imagine an Israelite going to the edge of the camp and seeing these venomous snakes. And it would have been really scary. But soon, that Israelite would have felt relief knowing that he or she was safe. I see those snakes, but God is protecting me. Those snakes are held back. They're not going to bite me. But as time went by, those snakes appeared less and less dangerous. And they were less and less thankful for God's mercies. That is until now. These deadly animals that were prevented from entering the camp of Israel are now set free to invade it. And you see, the just judgment of God came upon Israel not only because they complained and grumbled, but also because they were unthankful. And you see, they go hand in hand with one another, don't they? There's no such thing as a grumbling yet thankful spirit. They are in opposition to each other. And so these fiery serpents, they they penetrate the camp of Israel and as a result, we're told that many died. Now there's two ways you can respond. You can either continue to gripe and complain or you can repent. Notice how the remaining, how they respond, verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The people repent. Well, how do I know that? The people, they come to Moses and here's what they do. Notice the progression here. They acknowledge their sin. We have sinned. They specifically confess their sin. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And lastly, notice, they sought their mediator. Pray to the Lord, Moses, that he takes away the serpents from us. Well, what are we seeing here from the people? We're seeing repentance. This is genuine, real repentance. Israel responds to the chastening of God by seeking him. And church, this is the Christian life. The Christian life is one that is continually repenting. The Christian life is a repenting life. And that notion is, sadly to say, foreign to a lot of professing believers. Charles Spurgeon the Baptist, he says this, sincere repentance is continual. Believers repent until their dying day. Repentance grows as faith grows. Don't make any mistake about it. You see, repentance is not a thing of days and weeks, a temporary penance to be got over as fast as possible. Repentance, beloved, is the grace of a lifetime. And so we as Christians, we are always turning away. We are always turning away from sin and always turning towards God. And here Israel repents as they ask Moses to intercede for them. And in turn, notice God responds, verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God tells Moses to do rather a very odd thing here, that he is to make a serpent from bronze and to set it on a pole. Why does God ask Moses to do this? for the sake of saving the people from dying, right? That as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent upon a pole, the people were to look upon that serpent, and as they looked upon that serpent, the venom would be of no avail. Now, there's a few things that I want us to see here. Notice, when the people prayed, that they asked Moses to take the serpents away. You see that in your Bibles there in verse 8? This was their prayer. Moses, we want you to pray to God to take these snakes away. take them away. But notice that's not the solution which God gives. He doesn't take the serpents away. Now what would taking the serpents away? what would it have done? The judgment would have stopped, right? But as soon as it stopped, Israel would have been prone to go back to their synagogue. They would have been prone to go back to their old ways. If all the snakes went back to wherever they came from, they would have gone back to their old ways. But I want you to notice that God keeps the serpents there in the midst of them. And notice the serpents are still biting the people. It's not that they're just squiggling around. Hey there, dude. But they keep biting the people. And it's not even that God commands the serpents to stop. But again, they keep biting. What is God doing? Why doesn't he take the serpents away? It's because he wants his people to humble themselves and to turn to him in the midst of the judgment. While the judgment is still taking place, he wants his people to look to his solution while the judgment is still taking place. It's because it's the only way that they'll live if they look to that serpent while the venom is still in their bodies. Notice also that for Israel's sin, God has not asked them to make a sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't tell them to get an animal, a lamb, a goat, a bull, to put their hand on the head of that animal, to slaughter it, to take its blood, make atonement. None of that. All they had to do was look. God doesn't tell them to get some medicinal ingredients together, make some kind of healing ointment, apply it to your bodies. All God says to them is look. That's all They had to do while the poison was in their veins. Just look. Look away from themselves and look to the symbol. Look to the sign that God had provided. What more dramatic way could there be for God to communicate to His people that Israel has to do nothing but simply look? And to emphasize to them, that they have no part whatsoever in their sparing, no part whatsoever in their deliverance, that this was purely and solely and entirely the gracious doing of God. All they have to do is look. And if they just looked up, that complaining sinner, that discontented sinner didn't perish from the venom, but he lived. And you see, church, is this not the essential act Of saving faith. Looking to Christ. And looking away from ourselves. Looking away from our good deeds. Looking away from our bad deeds. And looking to Him alone. This is faith. Which is why Jesus in the Gospel of John. He he goes to Nicodemus that evening. And remember who Nicodemus was? Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who lived his life on doing good things, on merit. He was a Pharisee who did what every good Jew was told to do. But he came to Jesus that night because something with him was telling him that there was something more. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? Why? That whoever believes in him, in other words, that whoever looks to him may have eternal life. And guess what verse immediately follows after Jesus tells Nicodemus about that bond For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that whoever looks to him should not perish but have eternal life. The question for you then is this. Where are you looking? The Gospel tells us that the venom of sin is in our veins. That humanity has been bitten by the snake and it is deadly. This is humanity's greatest problem. That we are ridden with sin, separated from a holy God, under His just condemnation. Well, how how can I live? You look. You look to Jesus. You look to Christ and Him crucified and you live. Why Why did God tell Moses to fashion of all things a bronze serpent upon that pole? Isn't that kind of odd? Why not put in a bronze rabbit, a gold, I don't know. If you think about it, it's such a bizarre thing to look upon to be saved, right? You know, all these commentaries will devote so much of their material about archaeological discoveries, about bronze serpents or the backdrop of serpents in Egypt to give reason as to why a snake of all things was placed on that pole. But simply put, what was, what was on the pole? It was a bronze snake. Well, Why? It's because on the ground, there were snakes killing people. It was the judgment of God. And so as they looked up to that bronze serpent, as they looked up to that bronze snake, what do they see? A symbol, a symbol of the just judgment of God. And you see, when we look to the cross, we too see a picture of God's just judgment on that pole. On sin, But there's a problem. If the cross was simply a picture of the just judgment of God for sin, what should have been there on that cross is you and me, correct? That would have been a picture of God's just judgment on sin. You and me on that cross. But rather, what do we find? We find that there's a substitute there. Jesus Christ, God's own Son. There he is bearing the just judgment of sin that you and I deserve. You see, in the final analysis of the cross, it's not only a picture of God's just judgment, see. But as we look to the cross, as we look to that pole, there is a symbol of not only the just judgment of God, but his lavish mercy and sparing you by providing on your behalf his only son to whom all you have to do is look and live and church may we then keep looking to him in gratitude and in thankfulness as we live our lives in the wilderness let's pray together Father in heaven we thank you for your word and for the reminder, for the reminder of, Lord, how we ought to live. Not with spirits that are discontented, not with grumbling hearts. But, Lord, we confess that that is the state of our hearts. And we often find ourselves, Lord, grumbling and complaining. and Complaining about this and complaining about that. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we ask that, Lord, we would be able to look back to the cross. For there we would see, Lord, the just judgment of our sin. That we would see the Savior who took our place, the place where he died. Lord, help us to live faithfully. Lord, help us to live holy. Lord, help us to live looking to Christ. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Danny, for sharing God's